Hi, I'm Lucy Richardson, and you're listening to Here Aya Presente, a podcast dedicated to uplifting immigrant voices in Colorado. Earlier this year, my co-producer Lizette Zamora Galarza sat down with Kevin Vargas. My name is Kevin. A former immigration staffer for Congressman Jason Crow. Kevin was the former chair of the Immigrant and Refugee Commission at the city of Aurora. And more specifically, he was responsible for the oversight of the Aurora ICE detention facility. He was the first line of contact between the congressman's office and many local immigration support organizations, some of which you may recognize from other episodes of this show. Like Casa de Paz, uh, COPA, Colorado People's Alliance, CERC, many other organizations that deal with immigrants and refugees, specifically also in the detention center. The primary focus of this episode, though, is Kevin's role in creating the ICE report. This is here, Aya Presente. It's hard to forget the headlines made by the atrocious treatment provided by ICE detention facilities in recent years. The judge felt uncomfortable that the child was drinking milk from his bottle while his fate was determined. Detainees have resorted to a hunger strike in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Thousands of protesters in more than 750 cities are expected to march as the future of at least 2,047 children still in government custody remains unclear. But what can fix this? The marches fell on deaf ears. Survivors are left without justice. Families are still separated from their loved ones. Is a solution even possible? This issue can't be fixed by one piece of legislation. It runs deep. That being said, one piece of legislation could make a difference. And in the case of the Aurora facility, that's where the ICE report comes in. Lizette sat down with Kevin in a coffee shop to discuss his role. So there will be some background noise throughout this interview. But here's their conversation. When initially the congressman came into office, uh, there was a lot of reports that the facility was not taken care of, that detainees were not getting their treatment, that there was many other things going on around in the facility. And so we constructed this report to um, create transparency and accountability at the ICE facility. So that way we can continue to make sure that the immigrants are getting treated fairly, that um, they're receiving treatment, they're getting food, beverages, right? Like all these different types of treatment, medical treatment that they should be receiving and not reports that, you know, at the time when the Trump administration was there, you know, they were being mistreated. Um, blankets were like aluminum foil at the time when we saw those images, kids in cages, you know, that kind of stuff. So we wanted to make sure that this ICE facility was well put and was functioning the way it should have functioned. Um, so my responsibility there was to go into the ICE facility once a week, um, making sure that we like go around the facility, make sure that everything's functioning, that they have all the supplies, that they have you know equipment and they're doing their stuff right, processing right. Part of my job too was to do, overdo that, overlook the ICE facility, but also making sure that I have complete transparency communication between all the our stakeholders and that they also know exactly like what's going on at the facility. How can we help uh, detainees uh, have a fair process? How do they go through their asylum cases? Um, keeping track of someone who gets detained or who gets transported to another facility, writing support letters, writing recommendation letters. 
stuff like that that we can help out in the community. Did you have any like backlash or any like opposition about starting those reports? I would say surprisingly, there actually wasn't a lot of backlash. There was actually some very good support. Accountability and transparency does work um, because it keeps them on their toes. So, you know, when we hear about like expired food or like expired milk, um, we would actually go into these like cafeterias or refrigerators and we would check for expiration dates. And right when we started to do uh, this report, we never, never again have we heard about expiration milk after that. But of course, not all of the issues at the Aurora Ice facility were as simple as spoiled milk. A lot of like the visitation phones, for example, they weren't working at the time. When we started to do our reports, every phone was working. So I would say that like, they had to kind of work their extra mile to making sure that everything is functioning within the facility. And I think that's what people get really um, surprised at is when I say that a facility here in Colorado is different from like Texas, it is really, really different. We didn't want to catch like an aha moment, like we caught you in a way, but we wanted to make sure that like they are following the rules based on like federal policy and federal law because that's what happens when you have like private detention facilities, they can do whatever they want. So we wanted to make sure like, yes, you're private, but you're also working on the federal level. Like as Congress, we, you should be able to give us accountability because we essentially still fund you for what's going on. So the Aurora facility is different than most others, but the most salient reason why is because the facility is held to its founding promises by individuals and stakeholders who genuinely care. So my question is, why is this a unique structure for the Colorado facility? If the solution is as simple as institutional accountability, why isn't this practice commonplace? The ideological and demographic differences between the people in power may suggest an answer. The idea didn't come out of me. I think the idea came out of a collective of people that were working for a congressional office and the beauty about that was that the collective of people were actually minorities. My counterpart, uh, he was Salvadoranian and, you know, I'm Mexican-American and our director at the time was Muslim and we also had a Native American. And so like we had a collective of minorities who were very, very into this like topic and making sure that we do support our people and like know exactly what's going on. And also having a representative that is actually on your side makes a huge difference. Diversity and representation allows for more than just a group of people with different skin tones. It brings together perspectives carved from unique personal and historical experiences that can realistically never be understood by a member of another demographic. A homogenized governing body will always fall flat when trying to organize a diverse society. Not a lot of people get how federal policy actually affects uh, uh, families and actually affects uh, a personal life. And, I, and we feel that. We feel it directly. It's very, very important for congressional offices and for people to know that you need minorities in congressional offices. So that way you do fight for you know, your people and how you should be able to do things and know the values and morals of like what minorities are going through because that makes a huge difference on like what kind of policy you want to put in front 
right. like a representative or like senator or president right and so like that makes a huge huge difference so so as that collective group as we brainstormed we came up with the idea of like oh they have to follow a guideline what's that guideline so a guideline right should be a simple feat design a blueprint be transparent about your expectations and monitor the changes but nothing is quite as easy as it seems as my co-producer Lizette is about to point out, this guideline can be as well-intentioned as possible, but without proper reporting from representatives and detainees alike, it's a moot point. And unfortunately, these two bodies have vastly different perspectives on the matter. The reports might say one thing, but detainees or just migrants or were detained in the facility might say another thing. Yeah. So. How do you differentiate the two? Oh, that's a tough one. Because our immigration process system is so complicated, I would say that some detainees actually don't understand how our system process is going and makes it difficult to understand, like, you know, why am I not receiving the asylum process faster? Or why am I not going through court faster? or parole, you know, that kind of thing. And it makes it difficult for having to hear like, hey, I'm not getting this kind of treatment. And, you know, we are like, everything's actually going the way it should be. Because of the policy and laws that we put in place decades ago is now reflecting on what we're going through now. And so when we hear two sides of the story, Right, like when detainees say one thing, but we're like, no, sorry, everything correct. Um, that makes it difficult to kind of match those stories together. Right. Whatever kind of process and policy that we want to put in today um, will really affect what happens in the next couple of decades, because now we start to see two different stories, and we try to be like, well, we we want to believe a detainee of what's actually going on, but we're also seeing like everything's actually running the way it should be under the federal law. Changing the federal law changes the expectations. Accountability can only go so far as to ensure that the pre-existing guidelines are met. It can't be used to question if they are just. Further action requires the organization of a community. We still need to put people in the right places. Even, uh, it's hard to say, but the reality is not every Republican is a good Republican. Not every Democrat is a good Democrat. You know, we have Democrats now who are not voting because we put them in the wrong places, you know, so um, both sides are equally responsible for not moving forward with like immigration policy. If people can organize to capitalize on their right and their privilege to vote, then change will follow. First things first, I think like if we get DACA going through, like I think it makes a big difference, especially for those um, students and people that are my cousins and my friends as well. So it make a big difference in that. Um, but there's just so much to get done in terms of immigration and policy work that um, has been decades of policy that has just been torture for a lot of immigrants and refugees. So it'll take a while. And I think people need to recognize that. And there needs to be a lot of patience, but there's a faster impact when you put people like on local and state level offices and 
you should also put people in those places where they actually support you. Having a governor that actually like supports immigrants makes it easier for people to actually live here, right? Or having a city council that actually supports immigrants makes it easier for us to live here. The importance of us minorities, people of color, myself being Latino and brown, was to be in places that actually make that kind of change. And I think that's why I love love working with immigrants, love working with refugees, um, because I, I'm lucky enough and blessed enough and privileged enough to be an American citizen, be brown, and be in places to actually make a difference. As you may know, the difference Kevin and many other constituents would like to see is blocked by an incredibly complex monstrosity of red tape amassed through years of policy aimed at thwarting the positive trends in immigration. It's, it's tough because it's not just ICE, right? Like it's an immigration policy that's been put since like 1989, 1986, if I remember my laws again. And ICE was put like 2003 during the Bush, Bush administration, you know? So it's like, it's not, I can't just be like, ICE is bad. Like, I need someone to actually dive into the history of what was ICE implemented for, um, what's the reason why, and um, how can we uh, change it? How can we uh, reform it? If people want to abolish it, that's fine too. I think this country is definitely capable of implementing an agency to welcome immigrants and refugees. But like, how do we start that? And how do we begin that? Because the thing is, is that migration will never stop. What does ICE do at that moment? I don't know. I couldn't give people an answer to that. This has been Here, Aya, Presente. This episode was produced by myself, Lucy Richardson, as well as my co-producers, Gray Newman, Lizette Zamora-Galarza, and Carlos Jimenez. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Center for Immigration Policy and Research and the Center for Innovation in the Liberal and Creative Arts at the University of Denver. An additional special thank you to the Department of Media, Film, and Journalism Studies for the technical support. Thank you for listening. <laughs>